today, April the 6th, 2023. We're going to talk about all of the things that are going on in the news today. We're going to talk about the Trump indictment. We're going to talk about the Nashville school shooting. We're going to talk about everything that's going on. Uh, Should be an interesting show today. One of the top stories that we're going to cover today is about a report from the Maryland Attorney General that alleges 156 Catholic clergy members and many others involved in the Catholic Church in the state of Maryland um, abused over 600 children and covered it up. Here is a clip from CNN. In Baltimore, the Archdiocese is now apologizing after a Maryland Attorney General's investigation and report alleged there is widespread and repeated sexual abuse of more than 600 children. The report named 156 Catholic clergy members and others of the horrific abuse and cover-ups, not just the abuse, it's also the cover-ups that happened for more than six decades. Uh, This is a full accounting. Uh, There are details of repeated, tortuous, terrorizing uh, depraved abuse. CNN's Gene Casares is tracking all of this coming out of the new report. I mean, this report, I was looking at this yesterday, it is staggering. It 600. is staggering. We've seen it in other jurisdictions, Boston, I covered Pennsylvania, and now Maryland. This report, it was just released by Maryland's Attorney General, and it alleges sexual abuse of at least 600 children Shh. over six decades, beginning in the 1940s. That abuse would have been committed by 156, at least, clergy members, from priests to deacons to teachers, others employees of the archdiocese. The report alleged how victims, they were plied with alcohol and drugs, and then they were coerced and forced to perform sexual acts. Once you see exactly from the report, it says, from the 1940s through 2002, over 100 priests and other archdiocese personnel engaged in horrific and repeated abuse of the most vulnerable children in their communities, while archdiocese leadership looked the other way. Time and again, members of the church's hierarchy resolutely refused to acknowledge allegations of child sexual abuse for as long as possible. Now, 13.2 million has been given to 303 victims at this point since the 1980s. The money is going for counseling and for settlements. Many alleged victims were too late here because according to the civil statute of limitations in Maryland, victims have no recourse if they are over 38 years old. The report cites why they did it not sooner. Some wanted their parents to pass on. Before they would come forward, they didn't want their parents to know what they had endured. And by the time they did that, it was too late under the law. Others just didn't admit it, wouldn't acknowledge it, and others have a testimony. It's heartbreaking. I mean, so you, you talk about the settlements, that it's going to counseling and whatnot, but you, you can't, money doesn't fix that. It was an amazing investigation in that they would go to old journals and find handwritten legends of, of priests and, and other personnel with the church. And it's amazing what they have put together, but much more to do. And an issue now in Maryland's self-limitations. Yeah. I mean, I, I really just don't know what to say. I mean, at least the children of children. It's just... It's the victims. You know, it's the victims. What that does to someone's life forever. You can't fix that. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Some things ought to change in the schedule of enforcement. What is that? Like? Or it happened in New York, right? Because New York a law passed by the legislature so that for one year that there would be no statute on the case and then people could come forward with their cases. And I covered the Kevin Spacey case mm-hmm. in downtown New York City, and, and that was based on this law right there. But it's, it's challenging because memories fade, people pass on, the, the older the case is, and it's very difficult to prove. So I'm reading um, the Baltimore um, Baltimore Banner, which is the newspaper for Baltimore, where this has been released. It says the Baltimore Archdiocese hit dozens of child sex abuse cases. Um, it's alleged that oh, there were over 160 victims over 10 decades. Um, they are documenting decades of child sexual abuse within the Archdiocese of Baltimore um, and how they covered up sexual assault cases and sexual misconduct on the part of not just the clergy members of the church but employees of the church and other businesses that they operate Um, such as schools and all kinds of other things. Here are the summaries of the worst examples described in this report. They include priests who asked victims to delay reporting their abuse so that they could reach retirement age, prosecutors who agreed not to pursue criminal charges against the known abusers, and even a secret deal with a Baltimore County judge to resolve the case quietly so that it would not look bad on the Archdiocese of Baltimore. In one case, um, in June of 2022, um, one of the priests said he experienced abuse in the 1960s at the St. Bernard Parish. He asked um, the victim to wait for three years. Oh, he was the perpetrator, Father George a former altar boy confronted Father George Lascarn. He asked the victim to wait three years to report it so that he could retire, according to this report. He even offered to pay this young man for his silence. The abuse often took place on trips that they took out of state. According to the report, the victim reported that the abuse um, happened, even though this priest wanted him not to. In September of 2002, uh, Larskin's application for retirement was approved by the Archbishop William Keeler. Um, Oftentimes, a lot of the blame for this goes to the actual Archdiocese staff. The report claims the ultimate blame for the church's handling of sex abuse allegations with successive archbishops who returned credibly accused priests to ministry over and over again. It also criticizes the senior archdiocese staff members who did their bidding and helped them handle the cases. Five such individuals' names are redacted from the report. Others implicated and named because they are now currently dead are Philip Francis Murphy, who served under the Archbishop Lawrence Sheehan, William Borders, and William Keeler. Porter White, who worked as a consultant to Borders, and John Duggan, who served under Archbishop Patrick Key off. You're a fine priest, 
Don't worry about it. In 1995, after Father Brian Cox admitted to abusing several victims while working at churches in Baltimore and Westminster, the Archdiocese sent him to St. Louis for inpatient psychiatric treatment in an attempt to help him avoid criminal charges. Several years later, he was indicted and convicted. More of Mr. Cox's victims came forward after his conviction. In a 2019 interview with the Carroll Carroll County State Attorney's Office, he told investigators he previously turned and told an unnamed church official that he struggles with pedophilia. He said the official told him, it's okay, you're a fine priest, don't worry about it. In March of 1988, a victim called the Baltimore County Police Department and reported being sexually abused by Father Marion Hellowish at St. Stephen's Church in the early 1980s. The police alerted the archdiocese the next day, and the notes from unnamed church officials expressed alarm about the prospect of Hellowish being interviewed by the police. Church leaders allowed him to return to the parish and resume his ministry, despite the allegation made against him. Only after he admitted to abusing a second boy were he was he relieved of duties as a priest, and he was subsequently suspend, suspended from the church. During the investigation, the first victim was contacted a number of times by unidentified persons from the archdiocese who tried to obtain his silence. According to the report, he pled guilty to abusing the first victim in December of 1988, but the archdiocese did not report the second victim's abuse until 2002. Oftentimes, they intentionally failed to report such cases. When a victim came forward in 1987 to report that Father Thomas Burnfield had abused her, the archdiocese did not investigate the matter, likely because he held a high-level staff position within the organization at the time. He worked at churches across Baltimore region and rose to the position of chancellor. An unnamed church official inquired with the state's attorney's office about their reporting obligations without mentioning his name. Later, one of the unnamed church officials who knew about the abuse sent him a congratulatory letter to commemorate his 25th anniversary as a priest. The archdiocese only reported uh, Bounderfiend after a second victim came forward in 2002 and alleged and his alleged extensive abuse. There are uh, 100 acts of abuse, only one of which was reported to authorities. In 1987, Father Robert Newman admitted to sexually abusing 12 boys ages 9 to 15 over a 15-year period, describing more than over 100 acts of abuse. Newman resigned from his parish, but the church said it was for reasons of health, and they did not disclose the abuse to Newman's Baltimore parishioners. The archdiocese reported Newman to law enforcement, but the police report reflects only one instance of abuse with one victim. Newman was not prosecuted and got treatment instead. The head of the sex crimes unit of the state's attorney's office said she was not inclined to prosecute and see the value of trying to keep a man like this in the ministry. <laughs> Newman returned to active ministry in Connecticut only after a few months of treatment. Church often asked state's attorneys to not prosecute whenever victims came forward about the alleged abuse from the church. In early 1986, a man who was studying to become a priest 
told church officials he had been violently abused by Father Ronald Mardaga when he was 13 or 14 years old. The abuse consisted of anal and oral rape while Mardaga was serving as a seminarian at Our Lady of Good Counsel in Locust Point. Mardaga admitted to the abuse when questioned by the archdiocese. However, church officials later asked the Baltimore City State's Attorney's Office to not charge him criminally. Prosecutors indicted Mardaga and agreed not to prosecute him if he completed a psychiatric evaluation and complied with a treatment plan. He never did that, but still, he escaped prosecution for agreeing to do it and never doing it. Compassion and Courage for Pedophile Priests Father John Hammer began working for the Archdiocese of Baltimore in May of 19 after si- 1986 after completing tra- treatment for sex addiction and pedophilia. He was assigned as a chaplain of Baltimore's St. Agnes Hospital. Three months later, a Youngstown, Ohio bishop signed an indemnity agreement protecting the Archdiocese of Baltimore from liability for claims of any kind or nature whatsoever arising out of any culpable act or omission on the part of Reverend John E. Hammer. The following year, he received additional treatment. A 1987 letter from Hammer's therapist to Arch. As you know, uh, we have had difficulty finding replacements for those diagnosed with pedophilia and express gratitude for the Archbishop's compassion and courage. Oftentimes, the abusers within the church experience immunity no matter how serious the abuse actually is. In 1985, the Archdiocese helped Father William Sims secure immunity from criminal prosecution in Arundel County despite knowing he had abused numerous children at St. Andrew by the Bay Parish near Cape St. Clair. An assistant attorney general for the county memorialized the protection in a letter sent to the archdiocese's lawyers, which agrees not to prosecute Father Sims for any incidents of child abuse he discusses with county police investigators, no matter how serious and whether we already know about them or not. (sighs) Sims then goes on to abuse more children, and when lawyers for the archdiocese reported those cases to state law enforcement authorities, they would remind prosecutors of his special status. Oftentimes, stories were killed by highly placed newspapers. In 1958, Father Gerald Tragesser of Tosin's Immaculate Heart of Mary Church was prosecuted for sexually abusing a 13-year-old girl. According to letters, Archbishop Keoff wrote to other priests at the time, the case was resolved privately in the chambers of the chief judge of the circuit court for Baltimore County. When the victim's mother tried to expose the abuse through the press, Keoff wrote that prolonged and extremely careful negotiations and the happy influence of highly placed newspapermen prevented the story from being printed. Less than a year later, Tragesser was reassigned to the Diocese of Salt Lake City and described as having girl trouble. So this is a pretty damning report about the Archdiocese of Baltimore, and it talks about the repeated abuse of children and how the church has continually, continuously just moved these pedophiles around, and instead of prosecuting them and 
quartering them and chopping them into a million pieces and scattering them into the sea like they fucking should, uh, they often just move them from church to church where these sick, sadistic sons of bitches continue to abuse children. I really hope that these people get what's coming to them. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Specific instance or one specific rule that may be broken. The rules here Knowing that the house could not do business when you entered the well, when you were gaveled out of order, and you continue to stay in the well, you placed a bullhorn out of your own jacket, as you said earlier. Those actions, the speaker had no choice but to recess because then the emotion in this place exploded. So with all of that conduct by you, by overtaking the well against the rules of this house that we are bound to do under Article 2, Section 12 of the Tennessee Constitution. That's the site that says we must have rules for this house so we can achieve what we achieved today by past legislation today in an orderly fashion. I ask you this simple question. Were your actions last week as you define them were they disorderly and disruptive to this house chamber Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I had to take notes because I believe there's about 10 questions in Representative Garrett's comments. I want to begin with the first one, the first statement made. Today, every member was allowed to speak. Today, he had to make that clear that today, every member was allowed to speak because the news is here today. But let's talk about yesterday. Let's talk about last week. He said that stopped last week. No, it stopped when Speaker Cameron Sexton was sworn in as House Speaker that every voice was allowed to be heard. This happened when Cassida was here. And so for many years in this body, every member has been stopped from speaking by a supermajority that is drunk with power. He stated, you overtook the well trying to use um, language that harkens violence. No, we walked into the well. We walked together. Children, don't you get weary. We walked to the well. We didn't overtake anything. We did not use violence. We did not act in ways that were unlawful. We walked together peacefully and orderly to the well that many of us had been not afforded the opportunity to speak from. You said, were the way, you said, uh, was your actions disorderly and disruptive? I think the honest answer is that I believe that my presence here as one of the youngest black lawmakers who speaks for my district is disruptive to the status quo. I believe that's what is disruptive, that when I'm in committee and you seek to pass agendas that harm my community, I say objection, point of order, I don't agree, my constituents deserve a voice. That is disruptive and to the status quo because you would have us bow down 
but Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego said, we shall not bow. And that is what I say to you, Representative of Garrett, that we shall not bow. That is what I say to the House Speaker, that we shall not bow. Because what is disorderly is a body that has used voter suppression and rigged maps to take control of our state. What is disorderly is, is a body that silenced the voices of, of Nashville at the congressional level, at the city council level, now trying to remove us at the legislative level. That is disorderly to democracy. That is disruptive to what we have an obligation to uphold. And so that is my response. So what you just heard is a clip from the currently live Tennessee House um, committee hearing. They're trying to remove three legislatures, uh, three legislators, all three of which are Democrats in Nashville. Look, and there is this common thread in there about grace. Grace. It's not, it's not easy to bestow grace. Martin Luther preached in 1522 that God's grace received must be bestowed. So in case you don't know what happened, there was a school shooting in Nashville where Someone walked into a Christian school and shot three nine-year-old children and three adults. The police responded to the call about this and expeditiously dealt with that person. Um, I live in Tennessee. I'm here. I'm two hours from Nashville. Everything that happens in Nashville directly affects my life. And I live by the philosophy of something does not affect me directly if it does not affect my friends and family, and if it does not affect the community that I live in, I normally don't really give a flying fuck about it. Um, I, I, I go on spheres of influence. If a thing that someone does does not directly affect me, then, you know, it is what it is. Um, and so I generally stay out of most things, Okay. Yeah, I'm a podcaster. I have a big mouth. I like to talk a lot on the internet, but the majority of things don't affect me. I just report the news. I just tell you guys what's happening. I like to try to throw in a little humor when possible, but there's absolutely nothing funny about gun violence in America. And a lot of people are going to tell you, oh, we have the solutions. It's real simple. All we got to do is ban all the guns. That's not, that's not the answer. There's not a simple answer to these fucking problems. These things keep happening again and again and again. Not because I don't think most of these situations are gun violence issues. I don't think all of the guns that this person had were obtained legally. Okay. Um, I am a firm supporter of the Constitution. I believe that the Constitution is an ever-evolving document that should allow for progression. Um, a lot of people are going to say I'm progressive on certain issues. But the fact of the matter is, in the state of Tennessee, it is impossible to purchase a firearm legally without a background check and without a mental health check. I personally am a veteran that has 
mental health issues. And just out of personal responsibility, I have a gun safe with a lock that from time to time I submit that lock to the right authorities because I am not in the right state of mind to be able to um, effectively manage those firearms. And as part of my treatment plan, as a veteran, I willfully submit the keys to my gun cabinets and my gun safe um, to my mental health care provider. Nothing in the law states that you have to surrender your firearms to legal authorities when you are having a mental health crisis. This is also, I think, a matter of personal responsibility that a lot of people in this country seem to lack. Um, Personally, I think everyone that is of sound mind and body should be allowed to possess any type of firearm that they so choose. But not everyone in this country has personal responsibility and the wherewithal to know when the right time to own a firearm is, when is the right time to discharge said firearm, and how to responsibly be a gun owner. Um, And that just goes to show there's a larger societal problem. And we could go down the whole conspiracy theory road of every time one of these mass shootings happens, uh, the media immediately latches onto that, and a lot of people are saying that's exactly what these three Tennessee Democratic state representatives have done. And I don't disagree with that. Um, I think that's true. Every time one of these things happens and it's in the forefront of our mind, that yes, they do that, and they do that because they're very passionate about the issue. Do I agree with the means and the methods and how they do all of those things? No, no, I don't. Definitely not. Do I, I respect their passion and I respect the fact that they're saying, listen, we're sick and tired of our children dying. Um, but I have news for you. The reason why Japan only attacked Pearl Harbor instead of coming to the shores of this country and attacking us on our homeland was because they said, if we attack America, there will be a rifle behind every blade of grass. No other country is going to bring the fight to the homeland, okay? Because we are the most equipped and well-armed sovereign nation in the entire world. We spend a lot of money on defense. We spend a lot of money on weapons. And that has afforded us the privilege of not getting fucked with too much. We have more nukes, we have more guns, and our military is larger than all of our allies combined. And we are, whether we like it or not, we are a military superpower, okay? That being said, we have problem in this country, which I think is not just a gun control issue, okay? I think it is a mental health crisis. Um, I don't like the way that drug addiction is treated in this country. It's treated as a criminal activity when, in fact, it is a men- it is a cry for help in terms of mental health. Um, 
I'm a veteran. I have veteran-related issues. And in 2020, a very good friend of mine was having a mental health crisis, and he was murdered by police. He was a black man, and this was around the time of the George Floyd shooting. Or not the shooting, but um, the George Floyd incident where the cop kneeled on his neck and he, he died. Um, and then right around the same time, my friend who I served with, he was honorably discharged from the military. He had purchased a home in San Antonio, Texas. He was going to school. He was trying to live his life. Um, his brother and his mother both called uh, Bexar County 911 and said, we believe that he is having um, a crisis and we'd like somebody to go check on him just to make sure he's okay because his parents were gone and out of town um, for a funeral and no one else was there. So they did a health and wellness call on him and police went to his house. Um, there were three interactions between him and the police and on the fourth incident, the officer on, on the call decided that they would try to disarm my friend, and that resulted in his death. The cop shot him four times in the chest, and he was dead. Now, this is not to say that if my friend was not able to own a gun, he wouldn't have been killed, okay? Um, that's not to say that this was a racially motivated or racially inspired incident. I don't think it was at all. I think what it is is we are asking police to do things that are not their fucking job. They're not... Mental health care experts, they are not trained to deal with veterans going through a PTSD crisis. Um, Sheriff Salazar of the Bexar County Police Department, of the Bexar County Sheriff's Department, um, was asked multiple times why he did not send a crisis response team. And his answer was that he doesn't think that this incident would have ended any differently had he done so. Well, the officer that shot Sergeant Damian Daniels, this is not the first time he has shot and killed someone having a mental health crisis. So basically, Sheriff Salazar made the call that got my friend killed. Now you're wondering, what the fuck does that have to do with gun control? What does that have to do with mass shootings? What does that have to do with school shootings? All of this is a mental health problem. It is not a gun control issue. It is a mental health problem. The trans mafia is coming for you. <laughs> so, uh, yesterday, um, LTB, LGBTQ kids stage walkouts and marches against anti-trans bills as they scream, we have to fight. We need to be loud, said one of the youth activists at a march in Colorado. We are here and we are powerful. Um, advocates are taking to the streets to protest coordinated legislative attacks on transgender people nationwide after successfully beating back bans on gender-affirming care for trans youth in both West Virginia and Wyoming. Um, they've organized demonstrations at Capitol buildings all across the country and they're currently coordinating protests for Trans Day of Visibility on March the 31st. This happened last week. Um, they were 
They did rallies at the state capital of Georgia, which recently uh, became the 10th state to ban gender-affirming care. They were protesting in Tucson, Arizona, the state capital of Missouri. They were doing this in Pittsburgh um, and New York City and the Kansas state capital as well. So basically, um, there are these large groups of the, I'm just going to call them the trans army, um, that are standing up for their rights, which I don't have a problem with. I think that's fine and dandy. I think that's great. Um, because that's what's supposed to happen in America. If you feel as though you are an underrepresented group, gather up some of your friends, peacefully protest, and do your thing. Um, we're here, and we're not going to allow ourselves to be erased, says the Trans Radical Activist Network, a group organized in Washington, D.C., um, that is to stop trans genocide. Hmm. So do you think there is a genocide of trans people happening in this country? And if so, is it a self-imposed genocide? Because statistically speaking, 72% of all of the trans youth in this country that die, die by suicide, which is higher than the rate of military veterans returning from active areas of combat that end up dying due to suicide. So this, to me, sounds like it is a mental health crisis. It doesn't sound like someone's trying to exterminate you. Um, they've recently uh, compared all of these, all of the people um, that are bringing forth legislature to basically ban chi child age appropriate drag shows. Quote. Um, it's happened in my state, in Tennessee. I know Florida has one. They're popping up all over the place, uh, basically banning the drag queen story hours um, where these dudes dress up and go do sexually explicit acts in front of children. And even Bill Maher, who is, I don't, I agree some with what Bill Maher says, but he's extremely liberal compared to my personal viewpoints. Um, even he has said, I don't think things like that need to be in preschools and kindergartens. Like, can we wait until they're like 12 or 13? And, you know, like, I don't think this is appropriate for specific age groups, but yet the drag queens that are doing this are like, oh, yeah, it's totally fine for us to do this in front of two and three year old children. And, you have the conspiracy theorist and the far right leaning people who are going to say, Oh, they're grooming kids because they want to fuck your kid. I don't listen. I don't know if like they're trying to groom your kid so they can fuck it. I don't know if that's what's happening or not. Um, but I do think it's inappropriate for someone of that age that isn't, hasn't even reached the age of consent. They can't say whether they want to see these things or don't want to see these things. I just don't think it's right. I just, I think it should, it should be, um, just leave the kids out of that shit. All right. Just do that shit in the privacy. I don't give a fuck if you want to have drag shows in Nashville. They have them all the time. They're actually kind of fun. Uh, I'm not gay or trans or any of that shit. I'm a, you know, red blooded American white male, um, cisgender <laughs> assigned at birth. 
whatever the fuck you want to call it. I, I mean, I don't even know what my pronouns are. I don't give a fuck about any of that shit. I'm just some dude, man. I talk shit on the internet. That's it. We are here and we will not allow ourselves to be erased, says the leader of the trans radical activist network. Um, an independent reporter and transgender activist told Truth Out that the protests draw on a long history of the LGBTQ resistance. Pierre La Resistance. There's hashtags trending, mutual aid being one of the way people are responding to the anti-trans legislation. I'm also seeing tactics that we've used since the ACT UP era in the 80s, which in case uh, you don't know, this is when a lot of the gays and the queers, the queer people <laughs> back in the 1980s, uh, they formed this coalition called the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Uh, it has been shortened to ACT UP. It is a grassroots direct action group founded in the 1980s to advocate for age research, treatment, and policy change where... Um, <laughs> organizers famously choreographed public die-ins to draw attention to their demands, taking aim at lawmakers, Wall Street, and the Catholic Church, and the FDA. They have returned to the same tactics of the 1980s. Wow. They're targeting any of the state's that are trying to implement transgender sports bans, don't say gay laws, gender-affirming care bans, and restrictions on teaching of queer history and LGBTQ social movements in school. There's a completely false statistic that 80% of trans kids eventually detransition. These claims are nothing more than fabricated right-wing talking points, and the most recent study shows that 97% of trans youth continue to identify as trans, even as adults. Half of all transgender youth have lost or at risk of losing access to gender-affirming care, despite studies showing that access to care reduces suicidality among trans youth by 73% and the major depression among trans youth by 60%. According to the Trevor Project, 71% of LGBTQ youth, including 86% of trans and non-binary youth, say that debates on LGBTQ um, anti-legislation and bills and state legislature have negatively impacted their mental health. I fear that suicide rates and a mental health crisis will cause, that this will cause to our community. Kids across the country have been voicing their opposition to these laws, stating, staging school walkouts in multiple cities across the country. We want to fight to show support for other people who are just like us. A 15-year-old high school freshman told Nine News at a Colorado walkout. We need to keep going forward instead of going backwards. The Queer Youth Assembly, a queer youth-led movement serving LGBTQ people under the age of 25, has organized marches for LGBTQ autonomy in most states. We call for an end to violence and hatred directed towards all people. We ask for empathy and clear actions to support our queer, trans, BIPOC, and disabled communities who survive every day despite the world that we live in. Uh, trans youth in Colorado held a march for queer and trans youth autonomy at the Denver Capitol building. 
calling for a world where safety, autonomy, and the joy of queer children is protected. There was a Club Q massacre uh, where they shot up the gay club. Students from, uh, multiple students have died from gun violence over the past few weeks, called for an end to gun violence. Kids like me are under attack across the nation. Do we not deserve the same rights and freedoms of people who write the laws? If the children are the future, just leave us with one. We need to be loud. We need to be loud enough so those kids in the red states that are being silenced can hear us. We're here and we're powerful. First openly LGBTQ black legislator, Representative Leslie Harold, a Democrat of Colorado, is is trying to make Colorado a refugee state for trans children. Numerous LGBTQ people who were black and trans have been murdered this year. The Human Rights Campaign released a report of an epidemic of violence against transgender and non-binary people. At least 34 trans people killed in 2022, with multiple trans people murdered in the Club Q shooting. It isn't fair. I don't want to read the names of 50 people each year who were murdered for being queer. We have to fight. We want to be loud. We want them to hear us. This is the first step in us making a change. Well, like I said um, on some other things, I am neither gay, trans, uh, or a person of color, but I'm definitely paying attention to these stories and these things because <laughs> um, here's the thing I don't personally agree with homosexuality I don't personally agree with lesbianism I don't agree with anything that goes against God's plan for humanity and all of these things I think go against God's plan for humanity now I'm not ultra religious I'm not going to sit here and preach to you about what I think you should do with your own life you live your life how you want. As long as you don't bother me, I don't care. Um, but what I am hearing are reports of violence against people based on the fact that they identify uh, with this. Um, and one of the problems that I kind of have with this whole thing is a lot of times people automatically equate gender identity uh, to sexuality. And I don't think. There, there needs to be a distinction between gender identity and sexual orientation because um, while the two are often linked, um, they're not the same thing, okay? And a lot of the Christian, right-wing, conservative, you know, people are going to tell you, oh, this is an abomination before God, Um but if you look at it statistically, this actually happens in nature quite often. Um, and it's not just in humans. It's also in just random, um, you know, other, other animals that were, if you believe in God, you believe God created everything here on earth, right? Um, so, so, uh, Shit, what was I saying? I totally just fucking blacked out there for a second. Um, yeah, I, I don't personally agree with homosexuality. I don't agree with that. Um, but when it comes to transgenderism, I actually 
think that it is a scientific uh, I don't know exactly how to say this without y'all trying to fucking cancel me so I'm just gonna say it and you can fucking do with it what you want I really don't give a shit listen I've had conversations with trans people who have specifically told me do you have any idea what it feels like to feel like you are trapped in a body that doesn't belong to you and until I started having these conversations with people I looked at it from my perspective and my worldview, right? I looked at everything from, you know, I am just some white dude from Tennessee. I've been all over the world. I've, I've, <laughs> I, look, listen, I've been to ladyboy clubs in Thailand, all right? Like, I'm not judging people based on that. I think it's weird and I stay away from it, right? Um, but I started going on to places like TikTok and I started going into queer and trans spaces talking to people. Just because I want to know, like, yo, why do you hate people like me? Why do you hate right-wing Christians? And I started listening to what they were saying. Um, and the truth of the matter is, we act like fucking dicks to these people for no reason. They are, like, we're going out actively trying to persecute these people when we should just leave them the fuck alone. And we don't, most people that have a voice don't actually go out and speak to people and they don't actually listen. They just constantly go out and try to preach, 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 preach to people instead of just having some compassion and being a human and saying, okay, tell me what's going on with you. Right. And I had a conversation with, um, a young man on TikTok that explained this to me and really helped me see it in a completely different perspective. Right. So, um, I don't even know where this person is at. I had planned on um, interviewing them, interviewing this person on my podcast, but I lost contact with them because they had their um, TikTok account banned. And if they're watch, if they're listening to this, and if they're following me, you know who you are, right? Because um, we had some really good conversations about the whole transgender issue, and I feel as though that um, my mind was opened within these conversations because I approached it. I didn't approach it. I just shut the fuck up and I started to listen. Right. And, um, this person was very nice and very helpful and was not rude at all. And I tried to be respectful of this person. Um, and one of the really large problems that I think we have in society today is people are very, very, very afraid of saying anything that's going to get them canceled. And they're very afraid of losing their livelihoods because they're going to say something that might be considered offensive. And that's okay. You can say offensive shit. It's fine. I'm sure I've, I'll say plenty of things that are going to offend a lot of people on this podcast. I do not give a flying fuck of anyone's opinion about what I say. I am using this platform, which is the platform of my voice. Okay. I have a microphone and I have a cell phone, and I have the fucking internet. So I'm putting myself out there to be canceled anyway. And if you don't agree with me, that's fine. Come, share your opinion, talk. Let's get it out there, okay? Um, but anyway, make a long story short, I had some really good conversations with this person, and I realized, you know, me and this person found common ground in the fact uh our government is fucking us. <laughs> we both are living very difficult lives due to 
inflation and legislation and COVID and all of these things. And we're really just two groups of people trying to live our lives the best we can in a really, really fucked up society, okay, with fucked up shit constantly going on around us. And we're all just trying to figure out life and we're all just trying to make it and we're all just trying to be happy. So what I would like to do right now is something probably most people don't do on their podcast. And that is to an extend a hand to anyone that wants to just have a fucking voice because as a U.S. soldier, I defended your right to be able to say whatever the fuck you want to say without fear, any fear whatsoever, depending. It doesn't matter what your fucking opinion is. I will interview anybody. I don't give a flying fuck. I'll interview KKK members. I'll interview uh, feminists, feminazis. I don't give a fuck. I'll talk to anybody because um, I'm very open-minded and I want to learn things. And I have enriched my life very much by having conversations with groups of people that don't look like me, that don't act like me, and don't have the same values and belief system that I do. I keep an open mind about these things because I approach things from a human perspective because, first and foremost, I'm a fucking human. I also have empathy for my fellow man, and I am willing to defend other people who can't defend themselves. Now, I'm not saying that I agree with all of these things, but what I don't agree with is I read this article, and there is a serious mental health crisis going on in our youth because they feel like someone's not, they feel like the legislatures, the legislators and the people in power aren't listening to them and they don't have their best interests and needs at hand and they're not paying attention. Their voice isn't being heard. And as an American, I'm telling you, I got you. I feel you. Okay. I believe there should be a separation in church and state, okay? I believe that the state should never be able to dictate um, what religion you have to be, meaning there will never be a state-sponsored religion, but I also believe you should remove religion from the legislative process and make laws that benefit the greater good, not just vote based in line of what your personal viewpoints are, but you should also consider the greater good of your constituency. And the main problem is politicians have forgot that they work for us. There's no such thing as government funded. The government doesn't make any money. The government does not sell goods or services. All the government does is collect taxpayer money and then votes on what to do with that money. So there's no such thing as government funded. There's only taxpayer funded and politicians in Washington and all of the state houses need to realize that they work for us. We don't fucking work for them. They work for us. Our tax dollars pay their fucking salaries and that's what they need to fucking remember. Former president Donald J. Trump was indicted by a New York prosecutor uh, district attorney by the name of Alvin Bragg um, in which 
the former president has pled not guilty to 34 felony counts of falsifying business records as part of a Manhattan district attorney, uh, Alvin Bragg's probe, focused on a $130,000 sum that Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, paid the adult film star, Stormy Daniels, (laughs) to keep an alleged affair she claimed that she had with Donald Trump a secret ahead of the 2016 election. He denied having an affair with her and has accusing prosecutors of engaging in a politically motivated witch hunt. The actual payment to Daniels is not legal, but Trump is accused of falsifying his business records while we reimbursing Cohen for the money, which is listed in Trump organization records as legal fees. Prosecutors allege the money paid to Cohen was a violation of federal election laws. According to Newsweek, uh, Greg Kelly, in the wake of the arrest of his father on Tuesday, Trump Jr., was asked about a part of the indictment which states that a check from Trump from his own trust was signed by former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisberg and the defendant's son as trustees. Uh, Let's listen to this clip really quick. This is uh, Donald Jr. um, saying that he did indeed sign a check for the hush money. Let me refresh this right quick. Pow. Uh, I had the video muted. Sorry about that. Uh, Full screen 16. This is actually uh, from the charging document. The first check was paid from the defendant's trust and signed by Trump Organization CFO and the defendant's son as trustees. This is not the kind of thing you do if you're trying to hide something, if you're trying to deceive. I just and by the way, is that son you or is it Eric? Did you know about this part? That that son is me. And like like I said, it's clearly also not a campaign finance violation if it's from his own trust. Not to a campaign, not from a campaign, not from funds raised from, you know, so n- none of it actually makes any sense. Right. It, but again, it's a full screen. So here we have Donald Trump Jr., who was at the time acting as the chief financial officer for the Trump organization, admitting that he signed the check to Cohen for legal fees from the trust, meaning it came from the family trust. So what I'm seeing is right now is it is up to the district attorney, um, district attorney Bragg here to prove that they misclassified these as business transactions. Um, and that's pretty much all they have to go on here. None of it actually makes any sense, says Trump Jr., He's not been implicated or accused of any wrongdoing in the case involving his father. Prosecutors would have been aware that Trump Jr. was the trustee named in the indictment while writing the legal document. Falsification of business records is prosecuted as a misdemeanor in New York, but can be upgraded to a felony if done to conceal another crime. In this case, the second alleged crime could be a violation of election law if prosecutors maintain that the $130,000 paid to Daniels amounted to an improper campaign donation, arguing that it was used to help Trump's 2016 election cases or election chances by stopping negative stories about his personal life from becoming public. 
In 2019, Cohen told a House of Representatives committee that Donald Trump Jr. signed some of the checks used to reimburse the attorney for the money that he directly paid to Stormy Daniels. Legal experts said that at the time, Trump Jr. would only face prosecution for violating campaign finance laws as part of the case against Cohen if the former president's son knew what the payments were actually for. Weisselberg would probably be the one to say that Don Jr. knew or didn't know when he was signing the check. The Cornell law professor Jens David Olin told, told the press at the time. In 2018, Cohen pled guilty to federal tax crimes, including lying to Congress and committing campaign finance violations and related to hush money paid to Daniels and former Playboy model Karen McDougal. Weisselberg, who is currently serving five months in jail after pleading guilty to 15 felony counts related to tax evasion scheme carried out by the Trump organization, also said Trump Jr., as well as his brother Eric, signed checks, which Weisselberg then used to defraud tax authorities. Weisselberg testified during his trial that he did not scheme or conspire with anyone in the Trump family. Mr. Weisselberg testified under oath that he had betrayed the trust of the company and the trust that they had placed in him and that he at all times acted solely for his own personal gain and out of his own personal greed. A spokesperson for the Trump organization said after the company was found guilty in a separate tax fraud trial in December. The notion that a company could be responsible for an employee's actions to benefit themselves on their own personal tax returns is simply preposterous. So what we have here is New York District Attorney, which um, Donald Trump is a businessman, if you want to call him that, in the state of New York, um, in the city of New York, in New York City itself. Um, So... The district attorney for the state of New York is prosecuting him for allegedly misclassifying business transactions, right, um, to defraud the state out of tax money. So it sounds like he's trying to drop a RICO charge on the Don himself and... It is up to the district attorney to provide the evidence. We don't have the evidence yet. We don't know whether Trump is guilty or not guilty. We haven't seen any evidence. All we've seen is accusations and rebuttals to those accusations. And we'll see what goes on. We'll see what happens. I've been reading in several reports (laughs) that uh, Donnie here has a record of basically just stringing out lawsuits and criminal investigations until they lose steam. So he, he likes to play hardball. He's going to do everything within his power to make sure this goes away. And uh, he's kind of like John Gotti when it comes to going to court. The dude does not play any games. Um, This is going to be interesting to see because this sets a precedent um, because no former president of the United States has ever been indicted in criminal proceedings, which sucks because I think, you know, both of the Clintons should be in prison. I think... um, a lot of things that former presidents have done do need to be prosecuted. They just haven't done so um, due to basically political immunity and the power in, of the office in which they have held. So we'll see what goes down with this. I think the whole thing's going to be interesting. I look forward to covering this and giving you more news and updates as the shit goes down. <laughs> Alan Dershowitz, the famed attorney, has something very interesting to say 
about the Trump case in New York. Let's listen to what he has to say. Hard-hitting news show on ABC called The View. They clashed over what will happen to Donald Trump following Alvin Bragg's witch hunt. Let's see what the ladies of The View had to say. This case is not taking Donald Trump down, and I say that for a couple reasons. How do you know that? There was, well, just real quick, there was no conspiracy charge, which a lot of folks were looking to see that if there was. That was a hard charge to prove. It, the felony ch- uh, charges, they, the max sentence is four years, but this is a first-time offender. It's a nonviolent crime. It's a Class E felony. Every legal expert I've talked to has said most likely a fine and probation if he's even convicted. I'll tell convicted, you why you're wrong as this legal expert. That is that is wrong. And I, I will he's tell not you, going to jail I, over I will this. Tell you he's not why, going to jail I, over I will this. tell you why you're wrong. Prosecutors are not only in the business of prosecuting crimes, we're in the business of sending out a message. All right, joining us now, author of the best-selling brand-new book. It's called Get Trump, Amazon.com, Hannity.com, bookstores everywhere, Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz. Professor, by the way, and you know what it's like to be ostracized because of your political beliefs, because you went to, uh, I think, Martha's Vineyard year after year after year, and you were well-liked, and you had, you know, intellectual discussions with people of, of all different political persuasions. And uh, you're now persona non grata. That's true, right? Well, I I couldn't walk around in New York City with a T-shirt saying, I like Alan Dershowitz. <laughs> you cannot buy my book today in Shakespeare and Company, a local bookstore. You can get it on Amazon.com, but you can't wow. get it in local bookstores. There is no chance that Donald Trump can get an acquittal in the city of New York by 12 jurors who voted for Bragg when he said... He was going to campaign on the issue of getting Trump. Right, wait, just well, no so, it would Professor, be- slow down a second. You're saying, yeah. and I believe, by the way, you're right. I do not yeah. believe that Donald Trump can get a fair trial no. in New York City. I think they need a change of venue, but I think the likelihood yeah. of that is very low. But you're you're basically saying you, you think he will be found guilty in spite of these, I, I mean, what is a non-charge? They didn't even state what the crime is. It reminds me of when I was a civil rights person in the South. If you spit on the sidewalk, or even if you didn't spit on the sidewalk, if the sheriff said you spit on the sidewalk and charged you with it, there was no chance you could get acquitted by an all-white Jim Crow jury. Everybody knew that. You were innocent, but you were going to be convicted. I don't want to make comparisons between Jim Crow and New York City. But in New York City, you cannot get 12 jurors who are prepared to have an objective view and want to walk around town and have people say, that's the juror who freed Donald Trump and allowed him to be president. And the same thing is true with the judge. Any decent judge would change the venue immediately, but this judge won't do that. Any decent judge would throw the case out on statute of limitations. This judge won't do it. He doesn't want to ruin his career. He doesn't want to have the reputation of being the judge who freed Donald Trump. Remember, judges in New York are elected. There is no way he can get a fair trial. I don't care if Jesus, Mohammed, Abraham Lincoln, and George Washington, and and Thurgood Marshall defended Donald Trump in New York. He he would not win that case. Hung jury, possibly. Acquittal, never. By the way, the book, I read it, by the way, in one sitting. I couldn't put it down. Get Trump. And it goes through a lot of the charges. Here, Here is what I believe is happening here that the left in this country so hates this one man. And really, they also hate the people that support him. But they hate this one man that represents the people that support him. 
so much that I believe they are preparing what is what I would call a legal tsunami. Because you got the Bragg case, then you got a 27-year-old civil case about an alleged sexual assault in a dressing room at a big department store where other people were. Uh, the, the person making the charge doesn't remember the year. It could be this year. It could be that year. Not sure. Uh, then you go into Fulton County, Georgia, not exactly conservative, Republican-friendly yep. territory. I believe they'll try to indict him there. I believe then yep. I have no idea what the special counsel will find. Uh, but I would not be at all surprised if you see a series of indictments and arraignments like we saw yesterday uh, and thus tie him up in legal knots so that he really can't run a, a normal presidential campaign. Am I wrong? Well, I think- Am I- go ahead. I, I think they'll try to do that, but I don't think he's going to give in to that. He wrote me a tweet today, uh, a, a text today, telling me that he's going to, you know, he's going to win this thing. Uh, I, in my book, but it's not. Trump, but it's not I this thing. Every single. It's multiple things, I, Professor. No, no, no. I go through every one of the charges, and I prove there's nothing at all to the Fulton County case. You can't get somebody for saying find votes. Those are votes that haven't been counted. There's no chance in D.C. because what he said was protest patriotically and peacefully. And also those are federal courts and the federal judges are more likely to be able to rule in his favor because they have lifetime appointments. We're talking about New York, a state court judge. I don't think a state court judge today has the courage. I don't think state court jurists have the courage. That's why. But if you're dealing with four serious, significant legal issues, All right. (laughs) So according to Alan Dershowitz, uh, who is a law professor and one of the chairs of the Harvard Law School, he doesn't believe that Donald Trump is going to get a fair trial in the state of New York. And if if the judge that is presiding over this case had any balls whatsoever, he would immediately ask for a change of venue. That's not going to happen. Um, wow. I don't know what's happening to this fucking country. I don't know. I'm starting to worry about you fucking people. I really am. I really, really am. Anyway, moving on. Welcome, April the 6th, 2023, lots of shit going on in the nearers, in the nearest today, President Donald Donald Trump has been indicted by a New York District Attorney, um, Alvin Bragg, that happened. The Biden administration finally releases reports on the Afghanistan withdrawal and defends its exit strategy. President Joe Biden takes responsibility for the outcome, a spokesman said. Let's see what they have to say about this. On this International Women's Day, we want to take you inside Taliban-occupied Afghanistan, where women have been disappearing from the workplace, schools, and public life. 
Tonight, with their rights under attack now more than ever, meet the brave 25-year-old founder behind a network of underground schools who's giving hundreds of women and girls a chance to dream again. And that founder is now in a safe place, so we're able to show her face. But we have to hide the identity of the students and the teachers as they could be arrested simply because of the act of learning, which has now been made illegal by their own government. One of my teachers called me and they said, can you watch the TV right now? I was like, yeah, sure. What's happening? She was crying and she said, like, just watch the TV. I saw that there were girls coming out of schools and they were crying. They have been asked to go back to their houses. I was shocked. Today in Afghanistan, a woman cannot work anywhere. She cannot be a teacher, not be a doctor, not be an astronaut, not be an army. She cannot be an engineer. She cannot be a designer. She cannot be a businesswoman. She cannot be anything. She cannot even be a student. The fall of Kabul was not an easy thing as young generation, especially who were educated and they had their dreams, but now it was all vanished. I was also one of those people that wanted to leave the country. On 21st of December, Another shocking decree came up where they closed the doors of the universities for girls. I was really disappointed, but it was expected. I find it impossible for myself not to help. I cannot sit and just watch. When I started the first school, I was searching for teachers. I contacted many of my friends that they had a master's degrees. And they came together, we made a group in WhatsApp. And within two hours, it was more than 600 people. در او زمانی که میده 21 دسمبر طالبا اعلان کردن که پنتون ها باید بسته شود در او زمان من در پنتون بودم در پنتون کابل و دنبال کارهای ماستری خود بودم زمانی که ما اینجا میاییم بردست خواندن برای ما ترس هست اما در مقابل ترس ما علاقه ما بود اگر ما بخوایم در مقابل ترس خود سرخم کنم یعنی ما باور کردیم که من مردیم السلام علیکم صبح شما بخیر کای صبح است ال خوشاست چاش نیست چند نفر تو نان خورده every day when i wake up those girls are my motivation i ask the girls what do you want what's your dream what do you want to be in the future it was all in the eyes i remember the eyes of my students on the first day till today 
I think we have been a little bit successful in bringing back those shine in the eyes of the students here. The girls are coming to the school like 30 minutes before the class starts or even one hour before the class starts. They see the teachers as their family members and also especially the girls that they think of them as their sisters. فقط استاد فرق مایی است که استاد هیچ فرق نداریم فقط امی که روحا را بر ما بسته کده The activity that me and my teachers and our team are doing is illegal and three different decreased banned schools for girls All of a sudden one day some of the Taliban approached our school Fortunately we were not inside the school They asked the homeowner that some undergrounded or secret school is going on here despite that it's an illegal activity. The owner of the house told him that I am not aware of what's going on here. Just some girls are gathering together and they are learning religious studies only. So after that, many of the girls were scared and they could not come by the door. تلاشی به خانه به خانه شروع شد و چون دیدیم حساسیت ها خیلی زیاد شده تلاشی های خانه به خانه شروع شده ما یک چند مدت مکتب خود بسته کردیم یک عدد از کجا خوبیم که این مصبت یا منفی است عدادی که مصبت است ایج وقت علامه ندارم و ما بولیش ایج وقت علامه ندارم I wanted to hide this from my family but if anything happened to me my family have to know about all this so I told them so most of the time when we sit together The first thing my mother is looking at me and then she's like, can you please stop that? Can you please not do that and not continue that? And Because she's scared. If I stop this work, many of the girls will be forced to get married. Many of them will be dead while they are delivering a baby in a rural area where they, they do not have access to any clinic. We had three students that they wanted to commit suicide. We had many students that were willing to cut their hands. Many of the girls will kill themselves. اگه یک وقتی هم یک وقتی هم بیایه مرا استاد کنه تو چرای کار میکنی تو من اشتباه انجام نمیدم من کار اشتباه انجام نمیدم اگر من کار اشتباه انجام میدم اگر علم خواندن اگر تعلیم اگر آموزش اگر اشتباه هست اگر گناه هست چرا در قرآن گفته شده که اقرا به اسم رب کلزی خواهد چرا خدا گفته بخوان کجا بودی تو نیستی در اکایت نیست 
خو مقصد ما ما بسیار جگر خون شدم که این چیز دو خوشت نمیه بذیر نظر تمنیه So the Pentagon and the State Department have finally shared with Congress their after-action reports on the 2021 military withdrawal from Afghanistan, they announced Thursday during a press briefing, immediately drawing a flurry of questions from reporters on an issue that's long been controversial. National Security Spokesman John Kirby was tasked to respond to the findings and made two things very clear. At the top of the briefing, the administration still believes ending the war was the right decision, and they were left with a limited option, with a limited set of options because of the lack of planning by the Trump administration. First and most critically, the president's decision to end the war in Afghanistan was the right one, John Kirby insisted at the top of his remarks. Overall, he said... President Joe Biden takes responsibility for the outcome of the withdrawal, both the tragedy and the success. He's the commander-in-chief, and he absolutely has the responsibility for the operations that our men and women conduct and the orders that he gives. He continues to believe that the order to withdraw from Afghanistan was the right one. Kirby and the report both place plenty of blame on the Trump administration for, in their telling, putting Biden in a bad position regarding Afghanistan. Trump, for his part, has taken the opposite view, saying in 2021, Biden's botched exit from Afghanistan is the most astonishing display of gross incompetence by a nation's leader, perhaps at any time. While it was always the president's intent to end that war, It's also undeniable that decisions made and the lack of planning done by the previous administration significantly limited the options available, uh, Mr. Kirby said on Thursday. Thus, President Biden's choice was stark, either withdraw all of our forces or resume his fights with the Taliban. He chose to do the former. Despite having his options curtailed, President Biden led a deliberate, rigorous, and inclusive decision-making process that was responsible um, to facts of the situation on the ground. Kirby added, in fact, President Biden directed his top national security leaders to begin planning for withdrawal even before he made the final decisions that we were going to withdraw from Afghanistan. He also maintained that some of the intelligence that Biden received um, on the state of Afghanistan government was faulty or flawed. There were some assessments passed to him that proved faulty, that proved to be wrong, and that proved to not shake out the way he had been given to understand that they would. He said failures surrounding Afghanistan, from which the U.S. and allies executed a hasty, chaotic exit as the Taliban overtook the capital in 2021, informed the administration's approach to dealing with a rising conflict in Ukraine. I... I should note here that our experiences in Afghanistan informed our decision to set up a small group of experts for worst-case scenario planning on Ukraine, which it included simulation exercises and our ability to forcefully and plainly speak publicly about the risks that we saw of impending invasion. 
Look, there's going to be tension between highlighting warning signs that a country may collapse and undermining that same government. And that's a difficult balance to strike, he added. But in Ukraine, and before that, in Ethiopia for that matter, we prioritized earlier drawdowns of our personnel um, when each of those capitals were under threat. Kirby appeared to choke up when he pushed on the report's conclusion that without a permanent expanded military presence, nothing would have prevented the Taliban from taking control of Afghanistan. ABC News senior White House correspondent Mary Bruce asked what his message was to veterans and families of the dead who may wonder if their service was worth it. I happen to be one of those people, so I want to hear what his answer is on this question. Just because the mission changed over time under previous administration and leadership and scenarios doesn't mean that anybody who served in Afghanistan doesn't have something to be proud of, doesn't have, sorry, doesn't have service to this country that they can take with them the rest of their lives and feel honorable about it. Well, Mr. Kirby, a lot of us would tend to fucking disagree with you. But it is what it is. The reports were also provided to lawmakers via a secure portal so members can access them electronically. This review is an important step to inform future DOD decision makers, and we will continue to support other reviews, including the Afghanistan War Commissioner's efforts to review the full 20 years of the, of the war, the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said in a statement. I strongly believe that a thoughtful and comprehensive examination of the entirety of America's longest war by the commission will be an important contribution to the nation. The White House further publicly released a 12-page unclassified summary on the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which has drawn a lot of sharp criticisms from Republicans for nearly two years. At this briefing, Kirby would not promise to release more of the report to the public, insisting the release even of the 12-page uh, paper is an extraordinary step. Wow. It's like our fucking politicians really do not give a shit about the countless sons and daughters of this country who went and fought and died as long as Honestly, I'm pissed about the whole Afghanistan situation because military leadership tried to inform the Biden administration that if we withdraw, the Taliban will immediately control Afghanistan. And look what the fuck happened. The Taliban immediately gained control over Afghanistan. That's exactly what happened. We lost control of Afghanistan because of the hasty withdrawal. And we knew this from fucking Iraq. We knew this was going to happen. The military told Biden this is what's going to happen. But you see, Biden already had his plan for Ukraine and Russia in place. So he shifted his focus from the war in Afghanistan to possibly getting our troops involved in Ukraine. So... I don't know. 
whenever these people are talking about Afghanistan, I really want to tell every single one of them to just shut the fuck up. Because I personally feel like it's a slap in the fucking face. And it is what it is. Afghanistan ended how it ended. It will go down in the history books as the longest war in American history. The entire um, Iraqi freedom campaign, the Afghanistan campaign. And I view it as a bigger failure than fucking Vietnam. That's just me. That's just my opinion. Tell me to shut the fuck up. Agree with me. Don't agree with me. I I think is. 20 years and thousands of lives wasted just like F, just like um, Vietnam, and it will go down in history as a giant fucking failure. <clears throat> I don't know if it's recording. Okay, good. It is. So, hop back over here.
The Supreme Court is in the middle of this swirling controversy, and it uh, it causes trouble for Clarence Thomas. And of course, what they're saying now is Harlan Crow, this Dallas businessman, he was the one who paid for this. It was never uh, disclosed, and he is given more, according to ProPublica, than ten million dollars in uh, political contributions over the years. Yeah, I mean, that's really stunning. So, Ariane, what has Harlan Crow said about all of this? Well, he did release a statement uh, that we got a copy of. He said, we have never asked about a pending or lower court case, and Justice Thomas has never discussed one, and we have never sought to influence Justice Thomas on any legal or political issue. Uh, He says he's unaware of any of our friends ever uh, lobbying or seeking to influence Justice Thomas. But the thing is, it really does put a spotlight on ethics at the Supreme Court, because the Judicial Conference just recently amended its own rules, and it would cover things like staying uh, in a private resort, private jets. It said that those things have to be disclosed. So maybe, arguably, Thomas could say, look, before that, they didn't need to be disclosed so I didn't have to disclose it. But there's also federal law in place, and it says that members of the judiciary uh, should not accept anything of value from a person whose interests may be substantially affected. Again, language that might suggest that this kind of trip, this kind of money should have been uh, disclosed. Now, So now, now, now we're going to act like... Um, Oh, this is a bad thing because a conservative <laughs> was getting basically sugar daddied by this rich uh, donor, right? To the tune of somewhere around, I think they said $10 million in the report. Um, basically, he's jet setting around, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Old boy sugar daddying him up. So, I don't know. Uh, is Clarence Thomas dirty? Maybe. I don't know. We'll see what happens with this. But uh, Clarence Thomas don't give a fuck. He hasn't even, I don't think he's even responded. Uh, So the report says that his, that Clarence Thomas and his wife, a conservative activist, Jenny Thomas, have gone on several luxury trips involving travel subsidized by and stays at properties owned by a GOP mega donor, according to a new bombshell ProPublica report that was published on Thursday, which is today. It was not disclosed on his public financial filings with the Supreme Court. The report of the connection between Thomas and conservatives, conservative businessman Harlan Crow is already adding to the calls that Congress investigate potential ethical lapses. Key Senate Democrats were previously mulling um, using this year's funding legislation for the Supreme Court to pressure the justices to adopt some sort of ethics code. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin An Illinois Democrat said in the statement the ProPublica report was a call to action and that the Senate Judiciary Committee will act. The new ProPublica report describes Thomas accepting travel hospitality from Crow that included lavish trips to Indonesia, New Zealand, California, Texas, and Georgia. Some of these trips reportedly included travel on Crow's super yacht. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He getting that booty hole for sure. (laughs) Um. It says that uh, Justice Thomas was partying on a super yacht, staying at properties owned by Crow or his company. It also it also identified what appear to be several trips taken by Thomas on Crow's private jet that went 
undisclosed on his public ethics filings through one of Thomas' uh, trip on Crow's jet was disclosed on in 1997. In a statement to ProPublica that was also sent to CNN on Thursday, Crow said that he had been friends with Justice Thomas and his wife Jenny for more than 30 years and that the hospitality he has extended to the justice over the years was no different than the hospitality we've extended to many of our other dear friends. Justice Thomas and Jenny never asked for any of this hospitality. He said that we never asked about a pending or lower court case and that Justice Thomas has never discussed one with us. The Supreme Court did not immediately respond to a CNN um, request for comment, and ProPublica says Thomas did not respond to a list of detailed questions. In response to CNN's inquiry about the report, a representative for Crow sent CNN the exact same statement that had been <laughs> provided to ProPublica. Basically, uh, Justice Thomas says, suck my balls, CNN. I don't have to answer shit. <laughs> Thomas, who was nominated by former President George Herbert Walker Bush in 1991, is the senior most justice on the court and he is considered to be an intellectual leader of the current 6-3 conservative majority. The justice has also been the subject of scrutiny for the political activities of his wife, including text messages exchanged with key players in former President Donald Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Crow, a Dallas businessman with deep connections to Republican politics, has controlled more than $10 million dollars and publicly disclosed political contributions, ProPublica reported. The report documents a painting that hangs at the Crow's um, Adirondacks property depicting Thomas, Crow, and other influential figures in Republican politics, including Leonardo Leo, the formal, former Federalist, Federalist Society head who played a crucial role in Trump's makeover of the federal bench. Executive of major corporations as well as head of prominent conservative organizations have been in attendance on these trips with Crow that Justice Thomas joined in. I am unaware of any of our friends ever lobbying or seeking to influence Justice Thomas on any case, and I would never invite anyone who I believe had any intention of doing that. These are gatherings of friends, Crow's statement said. He did disclose in his 2001 filing that a $19,000 Bible that belonged to Frederick Douglass was gifted to him by the Crow family. Uh, ProPublica describes a portrait of the justice and his wife given to him by Crow as well as a donation by Crow's foundation of $105,000 for a Justice Thomas portrait fund at Yale Law School where uh, Justice Thomas is an alumni. Uh, Mr. Crow's statement acknowledged he has made contributions to projects celebrating the life and legacy of Clarence Thomas, just as we have done with other great leaders and historically significant figures. He said that neither Thomas nor his wife has ever asked for any contributions. Uh, calls are calling for tighter disclosure rules for the Supreme Court. The report comes not long after the federal judiciary policymaking body quietly adjust its interpretation of what justices are required to disclose as part of the gifts and hospitality transparency obligations. Some court ethics experts told ProPublica that the absence of the trip subsidized by Crow and particularly the travel on his yacht and jet on Thomas's financial disclosure 
may have run afoul of the disclosure rules. Under old guidance, there was some ambiguity as to what had to be disclosed. For instance, the recent charges clarified that this disclosure was required for personal hospitality subsidized by third parties. It would appear to apply to Thomas's stays at the Adirondack property because it was owned by Crow's company, ProPublica says. Um, Stephen Gillers, an ethics expert at New York University School of Law, said in an email to CNN Thursday that prior to the recent amendments to the disclosure guidance, Thomas could claim that because the invitation came from a private person and not a corporation or a business entity, it did not need to be reported regardless of the value of the gift that was given to him. But under the newly announced changes, um, Gillers says, some information and maybe all of the information about the trips would have to be disclosed on the reports. The reporting deadline is May the 15th of the year um, following receipt of the gift, meaning on May the 15th of the following year, it has to be reported as a gift. Judges face much looser hospitality requirements than members of Congress who are required to get approval for sponsored trips and who must report within 30 days other guests and certain financial details about hospitality, according to Gabe Roth, who leads Fix the Court, a group that advocates for ethics and transparency reforms for our judiciary branch. It's clear that the personal hospitality rules um, adopted last month do not go far enough. The Supreme Court and lower courts need the exact same thing, if not stricter gift and travel rules than what members of Congress have to abide by, Roth said in his statement. Durbin said in his Thursday statement that Thomas reported behavior was simply inconsistent with the ethical standards of the American people expect of any public servant, let alone a justice of the Supreme Court. Durbin also said it's time for enforceable code of conduct for those who serve on the Supreme Court. Republican Hank Johnson, um, Representative Hank Johnson, the top Democrat on the House's Judiciary Subcommittee on the Courts, said in a statement that Thomas should resign based on these reports. He made the same suggestion in response to other allegations of ethical breaches by Thomas himself. Moreover, the Department of Justice should investigate his violation of federal law and fa failing to disclose his private yacht and jet travel as required by law. And the state bar associations to which he belongs should commence investigations to determine whether Justice Thomas remains fit to retain his license to practice law. Americans' confidence in our highest court is tanking because of this kind of conduct. And Clarence Thomas hasn't said a goddamn word about this because he doesn't think it's a big deal. Because a friend of his was like, hey, yo, bro, get on the super yacht. Let me sugar daddy your ass. Uh, I mean, I don't know Clarence Thomas. I don't know this businessman, but... uh. You know what I'm saying? I think he's tapping that ass. That's just what I think. Because ain't no way you're going to be on my super yacht you ain't giving none up. I'm just saying. That's the major news happening today, April the 6th, 2023. April the 6th, 2023. Oh, man. Our country is so fucked, man. Like, it really is. Like, I don't even know what the fuck to believe anymore. You know, it's so hard to find actual reporting on the truth. And I don't... 
Listen, I don't lean one way or the other politically. I I don't consider myself involved in politics. I don't consider myself a Republican or a Democrat. I don't consider myself a liberal or a conservative. I don't identify with the Libertarian Party. Um, I feel extremely underrepresented in today's political political landscape. Because uh, most of the politicians have forgotten that they're there to serve us, the people. And they continually shit on us time and time again. And we're just supposed to lay down and take it. And I'm tired of this shit. I really am. I'm extremely tired of the bullshit that keeps happening. I'm just tired of it. I think America's going to fuck. And I think, honestly, at this point... I don't know, even know if it's salvageable, to be completely honest with you, and I don't know that I want it to be salvaged. Um, I think it's time for the entire system to be dismantled, and uh, big changes need to come to this country because politicians have forgotten that they're public servants, meaning they are to serve the public, not their own fucking interests. And the major problem... With our country, while there's multiple major problems with our country these days, we've got a mental health crisis going on. Um, We have a whole bunch of shit in every realm, and the media constantly keeps pushing these goddamn fucking narratives of, it's us versus them, it's us versus them. Um, And... uh, yeah, I don't I don't view that to be the case. I really don't. Uh It seems as though it's us versus them for sure. But it's not us the people versus us the other people. It's us versus the goddamn politicians at this point. Especially these um people who are career politicians. They think they are above the law, they are above reprieve, they are above punishment, and they can do whatever the fuck they want. You've got people like Joe Biden, whose estimated net worth is well over $150 million, yet the motherfucker hasn't had a real job ever that I can think of, that I can recollect. Now, I know he was a politician in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, His wife died in a terrible, horrible accident in the 70s, and uh, he used to take... You take the subway into D.C., and it's a great, moving, touching story. But I judge politicians based on their track record, if you go back and look at it, during during specific things, Biden voted the wrong fucking way. He voted against integration. In the 60s and 70s. He said, I don't want my children growing up in a racial jungle. He said that. Those were words out of his own mouth. But yet he constantly appeals to the black vote. Right? He's constantly wanting people of color to vote for him. But if you look at his track record, he's on the wrong side of history on a lot of votes. That's just the truth of the matter. Okay? There's a lot of serious issues going on in this country. 
But one of the major things that I think everything revolves around is we are having a mental health crisis in this country, okay? And a lot of it is caused by politicians and the media. That's what I think 90% of our problems boil down to in the United States today. 